Would you please remain standing and turn with me to Isaiah 53? Uh, I just want to acknowledge that you know, I sound a little funny today. So thank you for your patience with me. So you can tell I'm getting, getting over something. Um, I apologize if I'm overcompensating by talking funny. Um, but we'll get through this together. And hopefully that will not be a distraction from one of the great high points of the New Testament of the whole Bible. And now we come to one of the high points of the Old Testament. And what's sometimes been referred to as the gospel according to Isaiah. A fitting prelude to the end of Romans chapter 3. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet, he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Amen. Let's turn now to Romans chapter 3.
We're going to start at verse 21, and today I'll end at verse 28. So we'll finish off the last section of the chapter, which is transitional to the next section, next time. Romans 3, beginning at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, Sunday was a couple of days before Reformation Day. And so I touched a few times on a series of phrases that are often called the five solas of the Reformation. I just referenced them in passing, though. And today I want to revisit them and make them a little more explicit. I know these are very familiar uh, to some of you, maybe not everybody, though. and, And they're always worth reviewing. I'm more and more convinced that there are some things that just don't go without saying. We don't go without saying. We can't take them for granted. We must remind ourselves and one another of them over and over and over and proclaim them again and again. And these are near the top of the list. These phrases are called solas because sola is the Latin word for only or alone. And that uh, Latin used to be the language that Christians would use to talk to each other between countries and cultures, much as uh, they will often use English today in many cases. So these are five only statements that came to summarize some of the, the, the basics of the Christian faith that the Protestant reformers 500 years ago were seeking to recover from the word of God that had been lost or distorted over time. The first one is sola gratia which means by grace alone. It means that salvation does not come to us through human effort, but as a free gift of God, where God takes the initiative, where God does the work that is needed to save sinners. (coughs) The second one is sola fide, through faith alone. We are forgiven and accepted by God only because we trust, we 
rest, we believe in Christ. And so that means that our, it's excluding our obedience, the, the good works that we do. Those things don't contribute anything to that forgiveness and acceptance we have from God. They are not the reason God forgives and accepts us. Accepts us. It's solely faith in Christ. The third one is solo Christo, which means in Christ alone. It means that Jesus is the only way of salvation, that only he can save us, and that there's no other mediator, there's no other go-between between us and God. The fourth one is sola scriptura, that we believe all this on the final authority of scripture alone, that all kinds of human teaching and tradition are subordinate always to the written word of God. And then the last one, there's soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone, which means that all of this um, we don't take the credit for. We give all the glory to him. Now, there are countless passages of Scripture that each illuminate uh, one or more of those five sola statements. But there are a few. There are a few where they all seem to converge. In one glorious statement of the gospel. And today's text is one of those places. So I want you to listen for those five ideas as we work our way through which we're going to do here in three parts today. Number one, God's righteousness revealed, verses 21 to 22. Number two will be God's plan realized, verses 23 to 26. And number three, God's glory reclaimed, verses 27 and 28. So God's righteousness revealed, God's plan realized, and God's glory Reclaimed. First, God's righteousness revealed. All right, so let's take a step back and remember some big picture context here. Remember back to chapter 1. You can turn back there. Chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul's great thesis statement, the theme for the whole book of Romans, where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, what happens in the gospel? In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Of course, we might have expected him to say, in it, the grace of God is revealed. In it, the forgiveness of God is revealed, which is true. But that's not the theme for Paul's argument that follows, he says that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so in the next sections, Paul is going to be showing how the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Righteousness is going to be the lens through which Paul wants to look at the gospel. Okay, now imagine uh, 
kind of two big bullet points coming after that statement. This is a big outline. You could have verses 16 and 17, a big heading, big thesis statement, and then two big bullet points. One, two. The first one starts in chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Okay, verse 17 says the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Verse 18 says something else is revealed. It's the wrath of God. Now that begins a great big section stretching from verse 18 all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, which is where we ended last time. And in that big section, Paul works very systematically to prove what? This is what we've been covering the last several weeks. That all people, without exception, know God's law, are accountable to keep God's law, but have actually broken God's law, and are guilty and condemned under the terms of God's law. In other words, nobody can plead ignorance. Oh, I didn't know. Nobody can plead special treatment on the basis of their ethnic or covenantal group. Oh, you can't prosecute me. Don't you know who my daddy is? Nobody can claim actually to have kept the whole law of God. And that is why, chapter 1, verse 18, God's wrath is revealed from heaven. We have to remember that God's wrath is one expression of his righteousness. God's wrath you could say, is God's righteousness when it is brought to bear against evil, against sin, against law-breaking. It is because he is righteous that he cannot just overlook those things. He cannot simply turn a blind eye. And we might wish for him to, oh, isn't God supposed to be gracious? Isn't he just supposed to let us get away with our sin and not punish us for it? If that's the way God was, he would not be good. He would not be just. And the universe would be a terrifying place to live. God has to tell the truth about sin. He has to treat it as it justly deserves because he is righteous. Justice, righteousness, truth, that's who God is and he cannot be otherwise. But, now, but now is how chapter 3, verse 21 begins. So big chunk number one, big bullet point one, God's righteousness Revealed in his law against lawbreakers. But now big bullet point number two. God's righteousness revealed in another way. The same righteousness of God. Not a compromise of his righteousness. Not putting his righteousness on hold. Not setting his righteousness to one side. No, because remember the whole point from chapter 1 verse 17 is that in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed. It's put on display. It's manifested. God is showing us his righteousness in the gospel, in the good news. He's not compromising it. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So Paul is moving here, we could say, from the law to the gospel. From the law to the gospel. But he's also showing, and this is very important, that the law and the gospel are not pitted against each other as enemies. 
In other words, the gospel does not contradict the law. Rather, the law and the gospel are two complementary ways that God reveals his righteousness, the same righteousness of God. He reveals his righteousness both by judging sinners according to the law and by saving sinners according to the power of the gospel. From the very first sentence in this letter, going back to chapter 1 again, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Paul kicked everything off by saying that the gospel of God, the good news about Jesus, was not something utterly out of the blue compared to um, the to, compared to the Old Testament uh, that had come to kind of contradict or um, this revolution to overturn the Old Testament and substitute something else in its place. It's not how Paul sees the relationship between Christ and the Old Testament. No. The gospel of God, he says, chapter 1, verse 2, you can look at that, was something that God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so there's this harmony between the Old Testament and the New Testament, where the Old Testament anticipates what the New Testament fulfills. As it's been said, the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. And so now what he's saying, now what the whole Old Testament anticipated, Paul is saying, it's, it's actually here now. Now it's actually happened. Christ has now done what God said all along he would one day do. He has manifested. He has put on display God's righteousness in a new way. New, not because it's a revolution contradicting what came before. It's new, not because the idea of grace was new, or the idea of faith was new, or, or the idea of sacrifice surely was not new, or atonement. No, none of those things are new. It's not like people back then were saved by obeying the law, but now they're going to be saved in a different way. No, people weren't saved by obeying the law back then either. The law condemns everybody, even Old Testament believers. What Jesus did was new in this sense, that something long anticipated was now finally happening. It's new. It's here now. We haven't seen my, my parents since June. We've talked on the phone. We've had video calls. But you can imagine Friday night, the joy that kind of burst out of our front door, you know, greet them on the driveway. Because they were really here now. They had kept their promise. They had come. Now we got to be with them in a new way. The righteousness of God has now been manifested in a new way. Jesus has come. It's the righteousness of God now that has come in flesh and blood. As he lived a perfect life of righteousness, and as he died on the cross, a sacrificial death to fulfill the righteous penalty of God's righteous law as well. Jesus reveals God's righteousness in everything 
that he is and in everything that he has done. He is righteous and he has done righteously. And he has suffered a righteous penalty. Okay? So, what's the impact of this then? Here's what Paul's teaching here. He's teaching that by coming himself to be righteous, to do righteously, God in Christ has provided for us another pathway to righteousness for us. A pathway to righteousness other than the one that the law of God lays out. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Okay, so the law of God says, keep these commandments perfectly. And if you keep these commandments perfectly without exception, then God will acknowledge that. He will look at it and he will tell the truth about it. He will say, you are righteous and you will live. But you see, the law also says, well, you you haven't done that, though. You haven't obeyed those commandments, and that means that when God looks at you, he's going to tell the truth, and he's going to say, you are unrighteous, so you must die. But now, but now, the righteousness of God is revealed in another way. The gospel, which says something more. It says there is this other way for unrighteous sinners, lawbreakers, nonetheless, to be treated as righteous, described as righteous, declared, in fact, to be righteous as God's righteous people, and for that to be true about them. Not because of anything that they have done to make up for their own sin, but because of what someone else has done in their place. And that's the Lord Jesus. That is what Paul calls the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is what he goes on to explain then in verses 23 through 26. These are very famous verses. I hope that many of you have this sentence, starting in verse 23, committed to memory. If not, go home, start memorizing it this afternoon. You can memorize one verse from the Bible. This is the one I would tell you to start with. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Amazing. Amazing statement of beautiful Summary of the gospel message. But you may notice as you approach it, for the, maybe for the first time, you might think, oh, wait a second, there are some pretty um, particular words in this sentence where the meaning is not immediately obvious. They're not everyday kinds of words. I know some of you are quite familiar with them. Some of you may be familiar with them just in the sense that you've heard them a lot. But I don't want to take for granted that we all know what they mean, so I'm going to spell it out for us today. No time like preaching on this text to define these words for us as God's people. I want to make sure we understand 
what Paul means by justified, by redemption, and by propitiation. If we understand those three words, then we'll understand the meaning of this, of this sentence. If you've got one of the paper sermon outlines from the foyer here, then um, you can see I've given you some fill-in-the-blanks. I don't usually do this, but I thought it would help for today, these definitions, starting with the first one. Justified means declared righteous by God. Declared righteous by God. For God to justify somebody means that God looks at that person and he declares, you are righteous. And when he says that, he's not making it up. He's not saying something that's not true. He is telling the truth about that person. That person is righteous. And we call this justification. And there are a couple of ways that that can happen. One is somebody, we said this earlier, somebody obeys the whole law of God without exception. God looks at that and says, you're righteous. That's that person being justified, being justified on the basis of their obedience. You kept the whole law, now you're justified. We can say in the sense that Christ was justified. Christ is justified. Not in the sense he needed to be forgiven of anything, because for us that's part of what it involves. But in the sense that God declares him righteous. Christ, you are righteous. And it's true. Christ is justified. But of course, there's the big problem that um, we're not naturally righteous, that we all have sinned. And that's verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We come into the world with a sinful nature to begin with. And then out of that, we go and we commit all kinds of sins in daily life. We break God's law. And so what are we going to do? How, how, does, how can Paul say that God is going to look at you and declare that you're righteous and really be telling the truth. Wouldn't that be saying something false about you? God can't lie. Well, that's what the next two words explain. How can God do this? Those two words are redemption and propitiation. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption basically means a purchase or a, or a payment. Um, and a little more specifically, in, in its Old Testament context, um, this is something that Doug Moo helped to clarify as I was uh, kind of studying up on this. Um, redemption involves a payment that often sets someone free, gives someone deliverance. So if you want to fill in the blanks for redemption, redemption means the price we owe has been paid. The price we owe has been paid. The Bible speaks of sin as creating this crushing debt to God that we cannot repay. A a debt of obedience that we haven't given and a debt of condemnation, the consequences The punishment our sin deserves. Later in Romans, Paul will speak of it as wages. And God's righteousness requires that that price be paid. Remember, all this is about God revealing his righteousness, right? God's righteousness requires the price to be paid. So how is God going to reveal his righteousness now? Well, God can't just ignore the sin. 
can't put his righteousness on hold. He can't um, turn it off. So he doesn't do that. Instead, he does something much better. He takes it upon himself to see that that price gets paid. He pays for it himself out of his own resources. He provides the payment that we never could have come up with. And he did this by giving us Jesus. Jesus, the God-man, who as God had all of the infinite power, all of the infinite resources to satisfy that debt, to wipe it from the books as paid in full. That is redemption. And I hope you can see what this means. The only way you could ever receive that kind of redemption is only as a free gift, a free gift. You see, we are justified, that means forgiven and accepted as righteous, by God's grace as a gift, Paul says. Which, of course, that's really what grace means in the first place, fundamentally, if, that it, it's a free, grace is a free gift of God's favor given to people who don't deserve it. A free gift of God's favor given to people who don't deserve it. All of the cost borne by Jesus so that they can simply receive it from the hand of God with gratitude and humility and joy. And this is what we mean when we use that phrase, sola gratia. That salvation is by grace alone. That it is a gift of God that we can never earn. But Jesus has paid the price to set us free. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption, the purchase of the blood of Jesus that is in Christ Jesus. Paul goes on then to describe what Jesus has done another way in verse 25, and this is the most difficult word of the three. Christ Jesus, he says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Okay, if you're filling in the blanks here, just note that propitiation means that the wrath of God has been satisfied and turned away. The wrath of God has been satisfied and turned away. So in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, it's another place Doug Moo was really helpful to me this week. This same word, it's a Greek word, hilasterion, if you're interested in that sort of thing. The same word is used to name what in English is translated as the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And, you know, that was housed in the, the innermost, holiest part of the tabernacle. In that place where only the high priest could go. And he could only go there once a year. When he brought in the blood from the sin offering on the Day of Atonement, the blood of the animal that had been killed as a symbolic substitute for the people. So the people had sinned, but God was showing that he was going to spare their lives. They weren't going to be destroyed because God was going to transfer their sin symbolically to that animal instead. And he was going to accept that sacrifice of that animal as sufficient. He was going to accept that as though they themselves had paid the price of death that their sin deserved. See? 
can read about this in Leviticus 16. It says, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat, over the hilasteria. Same word translated here, propitiation. Now, as the author of Hebrews can make clear later in the New Testament, the blood of those goats that the high priest sacrificed once a year to take the people's sin away, the blood of those goats didn't actually take the people's sin away. Those sacrifices were, were pictures. They were symbols. They were previews of what God was going to do one day actually to take those sins away. When he himself came down from heaven and took on the task that that goat represented. When he stood there when he stood there in his people's place and he took on himself personally that consequence of death that they deserved, when he personally paid the price that they owed so that they could be spared, so that his people could be spared. And you see, it was in that way that God's righteousness was revealed because his wrath was satisfied and the debt was paid. And how could that have happened? And the people still survive? It was because God came. God came. And he paid it himself out of his own pocket. In Christ, out of his own veins and arteries, his blood spilled to pay that price for us. That wrath deserved by sinners poured out on Christ. That righteous God-man who represented both parties there on the cross. He represented the Lord and he represented us. God's wrath was poured out on him in our place. And therefore, he has turned that wrath away from us. What this means for us is the forgiveness of our sins. It means forgiveness. It's kind of a throwaway word. Forgiveness. Do you understand what that means? That your sins are not held against you. You're not accountable to <clears throat> bear the wrath, the condemnation that they deserve from God. Our sins are forgiven if, and here's the real key here, big part of Paul's point in this passage. Our sins are forgiven. That gift is ours if we receive it in a very specific way. If we receive that gift... By faith. You might think that God would earn this uh, tremendous privilege, this gift, and then maybe he would put it on a high mountain peak somewhere. Here's this amazing opportunity for you to be saved. Look at what Christ has done to save you. Now I'm going to put it on this mountain peak and there is a cliff. You must scale to get up there. Like in Switzerland, they say that the lovers will scale the mountain cliffs to go pick the Edelweiss to give to their beloved. It's a sign of their affection. 
God could have put it at the bottom of the sea and said, Christ has done this for you. But if you want to get it, you have to dive down deep and hold your breath and risk everything to bring it up from the depths, crushing weight of the water all around you in the darkness. You could have put it out in outer space somewhere and said, you got to get your technology together and go out and get it. Perform some heroic feat. Make some devastating sacrifice of something that you love and treasure in order to get this gift of forgiveness. That's not what God has done. God has put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. To be received by trusting him. By believing that, yes, that's what Jesus has done for me. And I'm holding out my hand. And God is putting it there, saying, here you go. I'm receiving that forgiveness and that acceptance as something that I could never get for myself, no matter how hard I try, that I've done nothing to deserve. It's coming to God and saying, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That is the heart attitude of a person who has embraced the gospel of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. That's the only way to get that gift. There is no other way. Now, I love the way Paul sums things up in verses 25 and 26 when he says, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, all the sins back when the goats were being sacrificed. Remember, the goats didn't actually take away the sins. Um, The people were still sinning. Those sins still had to be dealt with. Well, now they have been. Now Christ has come. He passed over those former sins knowing that the real thing was coming. So that now, now that the real thing is here, now that Christ has actually done this, God is able at one and the same time, to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There are these two things that God wanted to see happen. He wanted to see his righteousness fully displayed, fully carried out, never compromised for a moment. He is just and he can't be unjust, and that's a good thing. But God also wanted to save sinners. He wanted to be able to look at us and to be able to say, you are righteous and to mean it and to be speaking the truth. And how is he going to do both things at the same time? How could that be possible? How is he to be both just and the justifier of sinners? And the answer, the answer Paul is giving, the answer of the whole Bible, the message of the entire Bible is the answer is Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the way for God to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Because Jesus is righteous. He is the righteous law keeper and he is the righteous sacrifice. And it is when God gives you Jesus, when you put your faith in Jesus and you trust him and you trust his promises, that is when you get his righteousness as a gift to you. His redemption as a gift to you. His propitiation as a gift to you. The wrath is satisfied. The price is paid 
and therefore you can be declared righteous because you're trusting in him. That is how God did it. That is how God reveals his righteousness in the gospel, apart from the law. And that's what leads then to the concluding humility of verse 27. God's glory reclaimed. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. What part of anything I've just described can you take credit for? Not a inch of it. As it's been famously said, don't believe any of the sources on the internet who say who said it because I don't think anybody really knows, but the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Believe that. If we think, maybe I can do just enough. Maybe I can do just enough to please God. Maybe I can do just enough to make up for my disobedience by doing better next time. After all, God's a a God of second chances, isn't he? Maybe he'll give me another chance to make the right choice this time, and then he'll accept me because I fixed it. Then he'll let me in because I improved myself. Beloved, that is not the gospel. That's not what God says. God doesn't accept you based on the works that you do for him because you could never do enough. You pile all of the good that you've ever done together in one place and you set it on the scales with your sin on the other side. It's not enough to move the scales a millimeter. If anything, it'll actually count against you in the end because if that's what you're counting on, if that's what you're trusting to get God and your good graces, then you're all mixed up. No one ever got into God's good graces except by the grace of our good God. It comes first. And so we affirm with Paul, our boasting is excluded by the law of faith, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. The works of the law have nothing to do with it. Not your works anyway. Only Christ's. There's only one reason God forgives and accepts anybody freely and fully. It's when you simply trust in Jesus and you say, Thy works, not mine, O Christ, speak gladness to this heart. As the hymn says, they tell me all is done. They bid my fear depart. Thy pains, not mine, O Christ, upon the shameful tree have paid the law's full price and purchased peace for me. Thy cross... Not mine, O Christ, has borne the awful load of sins that none in heaven or earth could bear. But God, thy righteousness, O Christ, alone can cover me. No righteousness avails save that which is of thee. So to whom save thee, who can alone for sin atone, Lord, shall I flee. Let's pray. Our God, you have taught us this great gospel. Give us the faith to believe it, we pray.
Help us to take this to heart. Lord, we all have sinned and fallen short of your glory. But we're trusting in Jesus. He alone has paid the price. He alone has satisfied the wrath and turned it away. He alone is righteous. But in him we trust your promise and we received your, you receive your gift. That because we belong to him, we are righteous too. Our God, I pray that if there are any here who have never really understood this gospel, this good news, maybe it's dawning on someone for the first time what this really means. Salvation is your free gift. It's to be received through faith in Christ alone. Oh God, complete this good work by your grace, we pray. Draw near through your Holy Spirit and help each one of us to embrace these promises in faith. Let none of us leave this place with this gift still on the table. Let us receive it, believe it, trust it, and receive from you the life, the joy, the peace, the righteousness that you have manifested in the gospel apart from the law. Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We ask this in his name. Amen.